The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I am your host, Laura Matheson. Today, we are joined by John Grunland. John studied economics in university, and after working in the financial industry for three years, decided to enroll in flight school at the Brampton Flight College. After graduating from flight school, John moved to Yellowknife to try to find work as a pilot and ended up flying a twin otter on floats, skis, and tundra tires throughout Canada's Arctic. From there, John joined Porter Airlines in the first group of pilots hired when the company was founded in the summer of 2006. At Porter, John has worked as a first officer, captain, training captain, manager pilot training, and finally, director of flight operations. He participates in several industry committees, including as the current chair of the de Havilland Flight Operations Steering Committee. Among his accomplishments at Porter, John led an effort to improve stable approaches using operating procedures that challenged industry norms. This has led to speaking engagements at the Flight Safety Foundation, World Aviation Training Summit, and at the Boeing factory in Seattle. I'm very excited to have him joining me today. Welcome, John. Thank you so much, Laura. I really appreciate you inviting me to join the podcast. I really appreciate you making the time for me today. All that to say, how did you get your start in aviation? Well, uh, I had thought about airplanes uh, as a young boy growing up because my father uh, was in aviation as well. Uh, so I was born in Norway, actually, and uh, and he worked for the national airline there called Vidura, and then uh when I was about 10, uh, he got offered a job at de Havilland, which, uh, which you know well now. So that was in the mid-80s, and uh, we moved to Canada. And so I've always been exposed to aviation, you know, as a young young guy. And then uh, in school, I, I kind of thought uh, it'd be great to have a job where I'm making lots of money. You know, that's, that's, that was my goal back in high school. So I got into uh, business and I studied economics in university, got into uh, some finance as well. So I I did that and I did get a job downtown Toronto um, working for a company called AIG as an underwriter. Uh, I did that for, well, three years I worked total before just deciding that uh, the office life wasn't for me after all. So I I said, forget it. I'm going to go to flight school. Uh, So I quit my job and went to the Brampton Flight College and they have a, a 12 month uh, diploma program there, which is really designed for mature students. I was 24 at the time, so I, looking back, I wasn't very mature, but uh, I thought I was at the time. But uh, it was great for me because it could sort of accelerate the diploma in 12 months. And I did that. It was all full time. Uh, my timing was uh, impeccable uh, because this was 2001. And I quit my full time job uh, the first week of September. And then you know, a week later was September 11th, which changed everything in aviation and really reminds me actually a lot of what's happening right now, you know, because of the, the pandemic and the downturn. Uh, so, you know, we, I remember watching all, all that happening. Uh, you know, we got pulled out of class and uh, we sat, watched the TV uh, as a class and, and basically watched, you know, the aviation industry crumble. Um you know, and it, it was, it was, you know, personally it was profound for me as well, because I'd worked in finance and the company I worked for, they had an office in that building too. So, you know, there were people that I, I 
talk to all the time that were were there as well you know thankfully nobody i knew passed away but uh yeah that, that was my start to aviation and uh it was really because i i was searching for my passion i think at that time and uh i just came back to something that i thought about really since i was very very little and you know influenced again by my father i think more than anything else and you know what he told me he said uh, you know why don't you just become a pirate he said <laughs> i told him i want to be a pilot but in spite of that i, I did it anyway aviation is almost an entirely passion-driven industry from the majority of people i speak to and most often in aviation, a lot of the people that were working at the time can remember 9-11 very clearly. And especially for pilots that are more up and coming now, we definitely sort of have parallels with 9-11 for the aviation industry the same way with COVID-19. Um, and going sort of back to your dad's comment, being a pirate would have maybe paid better than aviation. <laughs> yes, I think so. Uh, it might have been more risky, though. Who knows? But I mean, I think for him... He, because he'd been in aviation uh, since the '60s, really. So, so he's seen all the ups and downs, and that was really what he meant by that. Uh, is you know to have more chance of success being a pirate than a, a pilot. Uh, and it was kind of ironic that he, you know, and, and I love my dad to bits and pieces, and he, you know, we talk about airplanes all all the time. So, uh, just want to qualify that in case he's listening, but. Yeah, I mean, it was ironic that he said that and then all of a sudden 9-11 happened and it became this big struggle. And I had to really, you know, do what I, whatever I could to find a job at the end of it too, because uh, it wasn't easy at that time. You know, much like it isn't easy right now uh, for, for just so many, so many pilots. So you'd mentioned that you'd studied economics before returning to aviation as something that was a true passion for you. What was it like to make that transition outside of the context of 9-11? It was exciting for me, and I feel like I appreciated going back to school a lot more than maybe I would have if I if I hadn't made that journey uh, through economics and, and through finance and working a bit and and just and realizing that I didn't have a passion for what I was doing. It just it made me really motivated. I, I felt like I didn't have the time to waste, and I, I felt like I, I I needed to be successful. So you know, for the first time in my life, really, I was just completely engrossed in in this in the study and uh, you know learning and. And um, at every every minute I had, uh, you know, without be talking to my colleagues or reading about aviation, and uh, I think it really, really motivated me to to just be successful um, at that point. It's a funny thing with uh, life journeys because you never really know where you're going to end up, really, as much as you think you do. But but it takes you in all different places. But uh, that that experience of having changed my career it made me really appreciate what I have in aviation and it, it's that's carried with me all through my whole aviation career now. What were some of the strategies that helped you during your flight training in the early days of your aviation career? I remember a guy who he wasn't my instructor but he was an, an instructor in the program he said that uh, you have to enjoy every part of the journey and uh, even flying a Cessna around not feeling like you're a professional pilot yet and that should be the most fun part of the journey he said. And uh, I thought, well, how can that be? Because uh, I just want to be flying like a Boeing 747 or 777 or whatever it is. And that should be the best part of the journey. And, uh, you know, looking back, that was such great advice. And I, I kind of lapped that up at the time as well. And I just really focused on enjoying doing spins and stalls and flying around in the circuit. And that was really great for me. No, I think as well that advice of 
enjoying every moment along the way. I can think of certain cross-country flights I did where I would invite a friend of mine with me, and I was doing that very much to try and make the journey a little bit more fun, having someone with me on this cross-country that was purely to build my hours. And some of those flights I look back on as being my favorite time in aviation, that I got to go Mm -hmm. fly to a different city with people that are now my best friends, and we all get to have these fun moments of flying into Billy Bishop together. I fondly remember doing that as well. That, that was my favorite part of the the, uh, the learning the fly journey, just the time building. Yeah, doing city tours. I uh, love doing city tours at night because, you know, build up some night hours too. Uh, and just taking friends up to go, you know, buy some fish and chips or whatever it was. You began your aviation career flying in the Canadian Arctic. What was that experience like? I... Uh, Loved being up in the Arctic. Um, graduated after September 11th, as I mentioned, and uh, I spent a month or so just calling around to as many companies and people in aviation I could possibly talk to, just to get advice and just see if there's any chance that they would hire anybody. And most of the time, you don't really end up talking to anybody important because they, you know, they don't want to talk to just someone cold calling, looking for a pilot job. But in Yellowknife, it turns out that there are a few companies there that were willing to talk to me. And, uh, you know, the advice I got from a couple other places, Air Tindy and Arctic Summers Charters, where I ended up working was to, you know, you got to come up here because we're going to hire in the summer, but we're going to hire from the people who are up here. So that's what I did. I just went to Yellowknife and actually a friend of my dad's, he had gotten a job up there uh, working the newspaper. Uh, so not an aviation job, but offered me a couch, a place to stay, which was which is great because I knew nothing about Yellowknife and knew nobody up there. And then uh, just started uh, applying for jobs every week. And uh, and that involved walking into Air Tindy, Arctic Southwest Charters, Buffalo Airways, Northwestern Air Lease, and whoever else was up there every week. I'd go in and here's my resume. Do you guys have anything for me this week? And they would reject me every week for nine months straight. That happened. I got a job as a substitute teacher, because if you can believe it or not, the, you only need a high school diploma to be a substitute teacher up in Yellowknife. Taught kindergarten all the way through high school uh, and realized that kindergartners are, are monsters. But, uh, you know, that was just part of the journey, which is, uh, you know, which was great. Uh, and then I got a dispatching job and did that for another nine months. And then they plunked a bunch of books in my lap and said, you ready to go on the Twin Otter? And uh, yeah, 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 I'm ready to go on the Twin Otter. Okay, here you go. There's the books. Course starts tomorrow. So yeah, I got a job flying a Twin Otter 18 months after flying school, which is such a cool, cool airplane to fly, you know, with 250 hours. Uh, and I had a float rating uh, with, I think, nine hours on a Cessna 172 on floats uh, and a multi-IFR. That's all I had. Uh, and then uh, I got to fly this Twin Otter on skis and floats and uh, tundra tires, you know, so you can land on beaches and just clearings out in the Arctic. Did that for uh, another three years. So I was there for four years total. Uh, and then, uh, but I guess it was, a, you know, I'd been there for a couple of years. They asked if I wanted to fly the Dash 8 as well as a first officer. I said, of course, yep. So I got a type rating on a Dash 8, which is how I ended up on the next part of my journey, which was a uh, porter because I needed, you know, some pilots with some Dash 8 experience. But if you're thinking about the Arctic uh, as a way to build time, uh, you know, and if, you, if you're up for an adventure, then uh, highly, highly recommend uh, it'll make you interesting. And I could talk for hours about all sorts of stuff that we did up there. How do you think overall that impacted and influenced the way you fly now? It's surprisingly relatable in a lot of ways, uh, good and bad. Uh, so in a good way, Twin Otter, it teaches you how to use your hands and feet because there's no autopilot. And you know, if you're going to land on a thousand foot strip, 
and uh, in, in the tundra, you have to be on point, meaning you have to be on speed and you have to learn the feel of the airplane and everything. And, you know, learned, learn how to uh, fly that airplane well, and you can translate that into flying any airplane well uh, from an SMV perspective. Uh, also learn how to be very self-sufficient. You know, we had to self-dispatch up there, had to prepare the airplane, load the airplane, unload the airplane, uh, wash the airplane in between flights. So, and you learn so much by being forced to do all that stuff, like, or even fueling the airplanes themselves. So, you know, we, we did go up in the Arctic and fuel out of drums. Uh, and there's an art to fueling an airplane out of a drum without spilling a drop on yourself. Because that takes some time to learn just to not smell like jet fuel at the end of the day. Uh, but, you know, you learn to work hard, learn hands and feet. And, uh, you know, dispatching, self-dispatch is, is really, really valuable as well. On the flip side, you know, when I came back to Toronto to work in an airline environment, you know, there were some things you have to unlearn too. The sort of bush flying mentality, which, you know, is great up there, but it doesn't really work all that well in an airline. That had to be unlearned a little bit. You know, so at an airline, we don't land on the first foot of the runway, you know, so, <laughs> so that that was something that was just normal for me to just try to like flare it onto that first little inch of the runway. In the tundra, we'd go back and look at our tracks to see if we literally made tire marks in the very first <laughs> inch of the runway. But that's not how you land an airliner. It's, you know, you're following the glides up to, you know, a thousand foot mark and that stuff, that sort of stuff. Uh, it's much more procedural at an airline too, so... SOPs or something that, that uh, you know, at Porter Airlines, we follow that religiously, but up in the Arctic, uh, you know, that was that book that you brought up when it's time for a check ride kind of thing. So, you know, some things were, you know, invaluable to me and I carry with me to this day, like the Hanson V flying and the work ethic part of it, but other things I had to kind of leave up in the Arctic too, so... Now, if there was a pilot currently trying to make the transition from northern Arctic mm -hmm. flying to flying at a 705 operator in uh, southern Canada, what would be the recommendation to really focus on SOPs? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm sure we're going to talk about Porter in a bit here, but I've had the benefit of, of hiring a lot of people. And I have a bit of a bias, you know, like we all do. We, we tend to hire people that are much like ourselves. And I try not to be like that, but it's just naturally is the way we're wired. But so, you know, I we've hired quite a few people that have come from the North for, through similar experience. And, uh, you know, we find a Porter and I find that they have great hands and feet, but uh, yes, focusing on the SOPs and IFR procedures, that's something I would say is, is, is important if you're coming from the North and, and going to an airline. But, you know, if you're, if you're listening and you're in that position, you should know that the experience you have is, is highly respected. And, and uh, again, Take that with a little bit of a grain of salt because I came from that world, but I, I know that from other airlines as well. In 2006, you were part of the inaugural class of pilots at Porter Airlines. What were some of the challenges of starting at a brand new airline while also being a newly hired pilot? I think what I, what I thought was a challenge is different than what was actually a challenge and looking back at it. So at the time, it was just so exciting to be part of something new. And for me, I was at a stage in my life where uh, my wife and I had a baby. So, you know, all of a sudden I, I just realized that I wanted to be close to family, you know, so it was a great way to get out of the North and, and back close to my family. So to be part of the Porter startup was, was so exciting. And I, I remember sitting in the room with, I think it was 12 of us in there with a, the, uh, you know, a couple of management pilots and the, the 10 of us that were hired. And I just felt so overwhelmed in a way, because I, at that time, I, I was a first officer and didn't have that much experience. Although I had, I had 
good dash eight experience, but, but the people in the room, uh, we're, we're much more experienced in the United. I thought like, what did I say here? Maybe they picked the wrong resume out of the pile or I don't, I don't really know, but it was really humbling uh, to be part of that because it was a really impressive group in that, in that first group. And I didn't feel that I was very impressive at all at the time, but looking back at it, I think, you know, it's much more uh, it's, it's really difficult to start an airline successfully. And, uh, and Porter was lucky in the sense that they found some really fantastic people in the early days you know, I was there because of the type rating. So, you know, I was there to fly the line and, uh, and I'm talking more in management and, and the training captains and the, the check captains and, and that kind of thing, which is something I got to later on. But uh, at the time, I didn't quite think about the fact that a startup typically doesn't last very long in, in Canada. And uh, really my part of it was just to, just to fly the line and do it safely at that time. But uh, yeah, it was just, it was really exciting to be part of part of the process and, and to see it go from two airplanes and uh, like we did 14,000 passengers that first year, something like that, or 26,000 passengers a year, something very, very little. You know, we do that in a, in a slow weekend uh, during normal times now at Porter. In 2011, you became a training captain and in 2014, you became the manager of pilot training. What do you believe is the most important aspect of airline training? Oh uh, boy, that's a great question. Because my own philosophy has changed over the years, too, as I've learned. Uh, you know, I, when I started out at Porter, I learned really quickly the importance of discipline. You know, discipline SOPs and discipline procedures, knowing the systems. Uh, and that, that has stuck with me and still stays with me as really important uh, attributes or, like, you know, keys to success, I guess. Pillars to success, whatever you want to call it. Uh, what, what I've learned over the years by being a manager of pilot training and now in my, my role as well as director of flight operations is that decision-making is such a key thing. And uh, it's very difficult to teach someone to make good decisions if they don't have many years of experience to, to rely on. Uh, so put a lot of thought and energy into how to put pilots into some uncomfortable situations sometimes in the controlled environment to teach decision-making uh, and we're still learning how to do that. Like that's, that's not an easy thing to do. You know, a great tool for that is, is what we call loft training, line oriented flight training. Uh, and we have approval at Porter to do, you know, every six months we go in the simulator, but you know, it's every other sim session is a loft event. And those are great because you can design these uh, Kobayashi Maru scenarios where there isn't really a, a good outcome and becomes a learning experience. And, and there's, there's a number of, I mean, you could think of a thousand different scenarios that, that you could throw at people, but, but the idea isn't for it to be clean and, and nice. You know, you want them to be stressed out and you want them to like really have to think about it and then overwhelmed with workload and all that stuff. Because uh, I've learned that uh, you learn more when you're making mistakes than when you do when everything's perfect in, in the simulator, especially. Uh, and so much of the airline training is about learning how to do things perfectly and executing perfectly. And it's about like uh, you get a stimulus and then you do a response, you know, like a, you get a warning light and then you execute a checklist and you, you know, do the SOPs and it's kind of a dance and everything is perfect. Well, there's real value in that training and that's part of the airline training. There's also real value in putting people in uncomfortable situations where they, they have to pick some options that aren't obvious. What I've also learned uh, is really difficult to manage is time. And so I'll give you some examples. So let's say that you have uh, an engine failure right after takeoff. 
you don't have a lot of time then to react. And we teach that scenario over and over and over again to the point where it becomes robotic. You know, we teach you again, like you, you get a stimulus in this case, the engine fails. So there's some lights and some bings and some bongs and the airplane kind of yaws to one side. And then you instinctively react to it because we do it over and over and over again. And then, you know, you do the checklist and put it away, like secure the airplane, we call it, and, and then it flies just fine. Uh, but then there's other scenarios where if you rush through it, then you you might make bad decisions. And so uh, a, lot of, a lot of things that happen in the real airplane, the best thing you can do is to give yourself extra time. And the reason why that's so hard to train is because when you're in a simulator, we pay a lot of money by the hour. And so all the scripts are just bing, bang, boom, one thing after another, engine fails, clean it up, do the checklist, move on to the next exercise, clean that up, do the next exercise, you know, and then we never teach people to just step back and give themselves more time. That's really the key to good pilot decision-making is, is knowing when to act decisively and quickly and when to take some time. And I haven't yet figured out how to teach on that simulator. While manager of pilot training, you helped change the go-around compliance SOPs at Porter and spoke on the subject to the Flight Safety Foundation. Could you tell me a bit more about this process? On my very first day as the manager of pilot training, so, you know, I, I didn't know, really know anything about the job, uh, really. I hadn't learned anything yet. My boss at the time, Piyush, he said, uh, John, you got to fix this hard landing thing. You know, we, we had had a couple of tail strikes as well. I think that injured passengers, is just, it's expensive, you know? So I thought to myself, uh, okay. <laughs> and I didn't have a clue where to go with it at all. You know, started reading about human factors. You know, that, that's how I kind of started thinking about human factors because I, I just didn't know where to start even on that project. And eventually, you know, Piyush, my boss, and then uh, Janet, who works in, in safety, she's, she's a director of safety. They decided that uh, they were going to pay for a third party to come in called Presage Group. Uh, it's a really interesting company. This is a guy, uh, Dr. Marty Smith, who has an office in Burlington, uh, used to fly 737, uh, went back to school to become a psychiatrist, I believe, and uh, did his dissertation on, on stable approaches and why pilots don't go around when they should. And so he came in uh, with his company and surveyed our pilots to ask questions about stable approaches and go-arounds and why people go around and why people don't go around. And I was kind of assigned to that project. So I worked directly with him and another guy named Bill Curtis, who works at Air Canada, very senior uh, ACP at Air Canada, to kind of figure out some way to solve the stable approach issue, which leads to hard landings and, and uh, tail strikes in, in the case of Q400s. So through that process, we... We got a report and I, I couldn't understand what the report meant, but really what it was told us was that pilots are much more comfortable going around at lower altitudes than the industry norm for stable approach, which is 500 feet. The industry somewhere along the line decided that at 500 feet, you have to be stable. And if you're not stable, you go around. And the reality that we learned at Porter and other companies too, is that the whole industry we know has about a 3% compliance rate to that SOP, meaning like 97% of the time pilots are electing to continue unstable most of the time uh, to successful landings. And then they're just really teaching themselves that it's okay to continue unstable and, and land normally until one day it's not. Uh, and the same thing at Porter. In fact, we were a little bit less than 3% for a number of reasons. And so the survey told us that pilots are comfortable putting that decision point further down, closer to the ground. And uh, no other airline had decided to go away from this 500-foot stable criteria. 
uh, we were the first ones to do it. We decided that we would say to our pilots that you should be stable at 500 feet, but you must be stable at 100 feet. Because we thought we do cat two approaches, you decide at 100 feet, and we know we can go around at 100 feet. And our pilots through the survey told us they feel comfortable at 100 feet. And so that's what we just decided. And almost immediately, actually immediately, I should say, uh, after we made that change, we saw a dramatic increase in go around compliance. We saw more stable approaches. Pilots getting more stable further back on the approach too. And we collected data for about six months and, uh, and because we were the first airline to make this change, Bill Curtis, who sits on the board at the Flight Safety Foundation, asked if I could come and, and talk about the experience at Porter. You know, that was a conference in uh, Dubai. Uh, so I went over there and I talked to all, all sorts of airlines around the world. And that led to uh, discussions at uh, Boeing. Uh, I, I was invited back to another Flight Safety Foundation conference to speak, spoken at Watts, which is World uh, Aviation Training Symposium. Transfer Canada. I've done a presentation for them. I've done a number of discussions with other airlines, kind of one-on-one. Air Canada since adopted the same philosophy, which I'm really, really proud of. They took a whole year to do a bunch of trials uh, in the simulator and in the Airbus uh, 330. And they kind of took their own path to the same conclusion, actually. And they came back to something very similar to what Porter does. Basically, the concept is that you being stable on the approach is dynamic. So, you know, you become stable at 500 feet and then it could change as you get lower. And that's really the key thing is that treated as uh, something that's changing all the time. But at 100 feet, you can't you can't fix it. So you got to get out of there. So, yeah, really, really fascinating project. And it's really defined a lot of the stuff that, that I've learned over the years, uh, which I've carried into other things as well. Pilot training, uh, human factors. Uh, I learned so much from just, just trying to figure out why it is a pilot's a porter will continue to land uh, when they're unstable. I can imagine it would be incredibly validating to have something that you had worked towards now appearing as a... SOP within other airlines. How do you think it changed the reality for pilots at Porter? At the time, it was very controversial uh, in a lot of ways. And it seems like people who had the most experience had the toughest time accepting that what we had done forever and ever and what every other airline around the world does uh, and continue to do to this day for a lot of them, it wasn't the best approach. Uh, meaning that that concept of that you're stable at 500 feet and you either go around or you continue to land. So, you know, when we first introduced this concept to our training captains, I remember introducing the concept, doing the presentation, and then the conversation got so heated that people were standing up and arguing really loudly. And I just kind of like backed away from it. And I thought like, wow, these guys, (laughs) these guys are really angry, like angry, standing up, yelling angry uh, about it. And then we, we just said, Piyush, I give him so much credit because he, he just said, no, forget it. We're just doing it because it just makes sense. So, so we did it. And then all of a sudden, people realized really quickly that it works and that it just is better and safer, so much better and safer in the approach and landing phase, where, which is, I think, the biggest opportunity for this industry to improve safety. As someone who has been a training captain and who has managed and continues to influence a training department, what are the qualities you look for in a training captain? I really like people who are humble. You know, I think you don't have to be the best pilot to be a good training captain. I think you have to have empathy. You have to have a real passion for teaching and learning. You have to set a good example. And and part of that means knowing SOPs really well, knowing the airplane really well. You know, being a good student yourself, you know, is really important. But uh, it's about the personality. Like you have to have a a good personality for teaching. And that just means you have a passion for 
you know, the success of the person you're, you're with. It's more of a personality than anything else. And, and people often will ask me, you know, after an incident's happened or maybe they get in trouble for something, does this mean I can't be a training captain anymore? And uh, I, I think to myself, and I say this all the time, you know, the fact that, that you can understand what failure means and empathize with it makes you a better training captain. Now, even just thinking about captain upgrades at Porter, what would you say is maybe the biggest challenge that most pilots seem to face when making the transition and going through the upgrade from first officer to captain at Porter? It's uh, about decision-making in so many different ways. So all of a sudden now you go from being a part of the team and an important part of the team as a first officer to now all the eyes are on you. So that is a really intimidating thing uh, when you first do it, you know, and, and emergencies at an airline don't happen very often at all. Uh, and so that's not something that our captains deal with very often at all, except for in the simulator in a controlled environment. But they do deal with managing time, you know, when do I board? If you're going into a place like Newark, where, where you have like a five minute window opportunity to get airborne because that's your, that's your slot. And that's a sign time you're assigned. Then you got to like work backwards. Like when do I get my crew out of the crew room to get to the airplane, to get it all prepped up so that we can start boarding. And, Oh, we have 74 passengers, like a full airplane. Okay. we got to board like 15 minutes earlier uh, and then push back at this time. And so like, those are all things that as a captain, it goes through your head while also managing the, you know, uh, the weather and the fuel and, and making sure that people are getting along and you're getting the most out of your crew. Uh, you know, it's less about flying the airplane now and it's more about being a manager and making decisions about just managing the day. That's kind of like a, a hard thing to teach someone, but but that's, that's I think, what people struggle with the most. And what I, when I look back, what I struggle with too is just learning to be a good manager of people and time and, and the systems all around you and getting, getting the most out of like the CSRs and the ground staff and the dispatchers and everybody else is really there to like play in the orchestra that is getting people from A to B safely. All, like, and the, the captain's job ultimately is to make sure that the flight is successful and safe from A to B. And part of it is just being on time. So you, I, I know this from fact, like from, from experience, I mean, that you get, you know, it's just easier when everybody enjoys working together. Having held many different positions in aviation, how do you compare being a director of flight operations to the other roles that you have had? I wear a lot of hats in my job now. And, uh, you know, I'm a more, I'm a mentor on my team. You know, my, my job really is to help my team succeed now. And that's ultimately what, you know, how I get judged. Uh, and on my team, I have a chief pilot and a manager of pilot training, manager of flight technical, uh, assistant chief pilot who handles regulatory affairs. And, uh, you know, we get, we get a lot done and I'm, I'm really proud of the work that the whole team's done, but most of it is not me anymore. It's, it's other people that are doing all the work and I'm, they're in a supporting role. Uh, and so my job is more to help other people succeed now. And I, I love that, you know, and when we have hard days at work, it's because, you know, bad weather or, uh, other things. And, uh, you know, it's stressful, but it's, it's like good stress. You know, it's so gratifying. It's intensely gratifying to have a really crappy day at work, like snow and all sorts of things. And then from behind the scenes, make decisions that mean that we operate safely. And we, you know, all the pieces ended up where they're supposed to be, like the airplanes and the crews and stuff. Uh, that, that part I really love. Uh, you know, now that I'm in the position that I'm in now, I, I get to do a lot of uh, post-incident debriefs. Uh, you know, if anything exciting were to happen. Uh, you know, engine failures or system failures or whatnot. You know, thank God we haven't had anything too serious, but 
there's been you know some some hair raising things and that uh, I've learned so much from debriefing crews myself you know that's made me a better pilot and a better manager and and really surprised me at how incredibly professional some people are you know that that I've seen some people that I've hired myself and I've taught in the classroom and in the simulator and then and they go out and they deal with an emergency and and I'm just brimming with pride because of how well they did it's just it's just fine I find that so gratifying so yeah I, I wear a lot of hats you know I, I sort of take a more of a parental role I guess uh, is how I would describe it in a lot of ways but more of supporting than anything else it's not uh, sort of the same as being a parent but but that's how I kind of feel like it's my job to make sure all these people around me are successful now what does a typical day look like in your role as director of flight operations I, I do have a lot of meetings uh, and that continues even, I mean, we're, we're recording this during the shutdown here. So, you know, I'm, I'm working from home and I'm, I'm having meetings with a lot of people. So, you know, I, being kind of the head of the flood operations department, then I have to liaise with the executives uh, quite often, other departments. I work very closely with the in-flight team and, and the dispatch team. Uh, we call them SOC and the other departments as well, airports. Um, and so a lot of meetings a lot of trying to come up with policy and set strategy and kind of look for long-term goals, budgets. So, you know, I'm kind of pulling on my economics training and finance background a little bit here too. So, and ironically, you know, I started off thinking I, I don't want to wear a suit and be in an office and work downtown Toronto. And here I am, I, I go to work, I wear a suit and I sit in an office all day long. <laughs> what is the most rewarding aspect of your role? Watching other people succeed around me that that I've helped be successful uh, is really rewarding. Um, you know, getting through a really hard day with really bad weather all over the place safely is just incredibly rewarding. You know, working on big projects like the the stable approach project. I mean, that that that's a, like a once in a career opportunity where you have the ability to influence change, positive change in this industry. I'm just so incredibly proud of that. Uh, so that that's that's really rewarding. And and the, the porter working at porter with the culture that we have, and now being in a in a position where I can influence the culture and and make things better, you know, I hear from pilots that work for porter that tell me that they value the culture more than anything else, and and it just makes me feel so proud, you know, to have been there at the beginning as a first officer and and not realizing that I was starting off really like not really understanding the gravity of the whole thing. And I didn't start that culture. That, that was started for me. But now I've just kind of carried the flag uh, onwards. But yeah, I'm just intensely proud of the the company culture at Porter and the, the safety culture. And it's it's a tough one, you know, because you it takes a lot of effort to actually have a good culture, like treating people with respect and building mutual trust and communicating effectively. It's something that I consciously work on every day, you know. And I'm fundamentally flawed in all those things, uh, like all of us are. Uh, it's really hard to be good at being a good communicator and being being trusted and, you know, being a good leader. Uh, but I, I think it's part of the experience for people who work for Porter is to be able to have a good relationship with the leadership team within flight ops too. So, you know, it's something I take very, very seriously and, and work very hard at, at being better at all the time. Uh, that's That's what I get out of it. Now, who is someone in aviation you admire and why? There's been a lot of people that have influenced me over my career. Uh, my dad, first and foremost, he, uh, you know, he's one of these people who doesn't want to retire from aviation, I think. So he, he retired officially 15 years ago and still works in aviation. You know, he, he's first and foremost been someone I've admired uh, and been an influence for me. 
there's a number of others. Bob DeLuce, who uh, you know started Porter Airlines. I really admire him, uh, and and I've gotten to know him over the years too. And I, I just I'm so impressed with that guy because uh, of the culture at Porter and the, the passion for aviation and the passion for safety and you know pushing me personally. You know, I, I meet with him monthly, uh, and uh, he he holds me accountable, and and it makes me a better manager, makes me a better person, and, and he's interested in mentoring, and so he's he's one for sure. Uh, there's been others along the way. My old boss Piush, uh, you know, he really challenged me as well, and I I'm a much better leader and manager and person because of it. Dr. Marty Smith, who I've gotten to to know quite well, he's 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 an amazing guy too. Um, and then there's just a bunch of people that work at Porter too, you know, Kate and Dave, who you interviewed in another podcast, they're, they're awesome. And, uh, my team as well, Paula, who's a chief pilot. I mean, how many female chief pilots are there in the world? Not too many at all, you know, and, and I have uh, an assistant chief pilot who's female as well. Liz, Elizabeth Mitches, who, uh, continues to amaze me with just an incredible amount of work and, uh, and projects that we, we get done. And the others as well, Sam Carter and Eric Myers. Those are, those are people that are part of my team, but uh, I really admire them because they just surprise me every day at, at what we can accomplish as a group. What are some of the things that you enjoy outside of aviation? Well, I have two kids. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, at home, I kind of come last on the totem pole here, but I spend a lot of my times there are a lot of my days uh, outside of aviation, just, you know, doing family stuff. And we, we love to go skiing and my son loves baseball more than anything else. He's 10 years old and uh, tells me every day he's going to be a professional baseball player. So, you know, my, my hobbies kind of revolve around my kids these days and the, you know, and then that's just kind of the way it is, but uh, yeah, skiing and sailing. I love sailing. I don't get to do very much of that either, but, uh, and traveling, of course, uh, outside of work too is, is something I really enjoy. Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your career? Boy, there's, there's been quite a few. Uh, I, I got to go back to the, the stable approach project. I think, uh, it was, you know, Air Canada, they, they did the, uh, their own study after we provided them with data at, at Porter, uh, about the success of the changes we made. And so they went through a whole year of, uh, of studying their own, procedures and trying to come up with something new and came to the conclusion that they wanted to go the same route. And it was just so, it was so validating to me um, that an air, airline with their resources and, and the amount of effort and time they took it on that project the whole year, simulator trials and all sorts of things. Uh, you know, that, I think that was very quietly the maybe the most gratifying thing in my career because it was it was it was at the time that we made that change quite radical and controversial and a lot of people from this industry told me that we were crazy including internally too but then uh, kind of come full circle now so and uh, um, yeah so as part of that stable approach project I got to talk to uh, an astronaut and I was so excited about this it was uh, Charlie Prescott who. If you look up his name, you'll see he's been to space like seven or eight times and has now worked for Lockheed Martin and also is part of the safety committee for Cessna jet pilot owners uh, in the States. Uh, but they reached out to me through uh, Dr. Marty Smith and wanted to talk about stable approach procedures. So I, I actually, <laughs> I, I had a conversation with uh, an astronaut who's glided the space shuttle onto a runway to talk about stable approaches and energy management. 
all through this, this stable approach project. That was a really, really cool thing for me personally. It's just even, you know, to be even having a conversation with someone like that, but for them to be interested in, in what we've done is just unbelievable to me. That happened just last year, actually. So before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, I, I am on LinkedIn, so you can find me there. And, uh, you know, for Porter Airlines, we, we have a LinkedIn presence as well through Destination Porter. But if you want to reach out to me there, then, then, uh, then that's the place to go, I think. John Grenland, thank you so much for joining me today. It was such a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you for that. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us. Thank you.